0: You are now listening to the Minority Trailblazer Podcast. Let the story begin. One time for the lovers, two times for the ladies, three times for the brothers, four times for the babies. Do 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 you love her? 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 Do you love it? Do you love her? Do you love it? 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 Do you love her? One time for the lovers, two times for the ladies, three times for the brothers, four times for the babies. Do you love her? Do you love her? Do you love her? Do you love it? Do you love it? Do you love her? Do you love it? Do you love her? Do you love it? Do you love her? Do you love her? Do you love her? Do you love her? Do you love it? Do you love it? Do you love her? Brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown Brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown, she my brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown, she my brown skin, love a brown skin, hold me down, yeah. Welcome to the Minority Trollblazer Podcast, and I'm your host, Greg E. Hill, the culture change agent. And it is a blessing to be the host of one of the most influential podcasts in the country where every week we interview young, successful minorities in a variety of fields to educate, to empower and to inspire our current and future generational leaders. And if I'm pumped, I'm excited. I'm calling it right now. Game changing historical podcast. Uh, People have been hitting me up, first of all, before I even get into my segue of an intro into the show, I want to say thank you so much for the people on Twitter for shouting me out, saying you love the show. People on Instagram, they're adding the M to Mono Trouble as a podcast, adding me, letting the viewers know or letting the guests know that you love their story and you're encouraged by what they have shared. Um, I really appreciate that because I can see the numbers every week. I see, okay, we've reached over 100,000. We're hitting a couple thousand downloads every week. I can see That, But just seeing that you are not only listening, but engaging with me, engaging with the people that are on my show. I mean, that's phenomenal. I never could have dreamed when I started this a year and a couple months ago that it would get this far. And we are not stopping. So before I say one more thing, I just want to say thank you. Wherever you're listening to, if you're listening to your car, in the gym, um, in the crib, whatever you're listening to, I appreciate it so, so much. I do not take it for granted. Of course, I want to continue to get better and better and better, but I'm not gonna let good be the enemy of great. Or oh, I think I'm I might have switched that around. I ain't gonna edit it. I'm just gonna leave it out there. I think I I think I switched that around. But I'm pumped, I'm excited. My eyes are still messed up. I didn't tell y'all last week, but last week I had an eye infection, which killed my whole week. I was entering the high school, eyes bloodshot red. I couldn't even open them halfway. People looking at me funny. You know, the, the kids, I go to the Title One school. They looking at me like, yo, Mr. Hill, what you what you been doing? But I let them know what was good. I'm driving into work. I feel like a, uh, what is it? What, 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 what A vampire. You know, vampires, they can't come out in the day. I'm driving the sun all in my eyes. I can't even see. I almost had to take an Uber to work. And I only live 10 minutes away from the school. So it's been a trying, trying week. And unfortunately, you know, you only had a year to redo the glass con- on the, 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 the eye exam. So my, my contact prescription fell out and they will not issue any type of contacts without them. I'm like, bro, it's easier to get a lot of other stuff in America than it is get contacts. So I'm, I'm stressing over the next week. I'm trying to fill a date. So next week, I am legally blind on left eye. And if if you see me in the hot, I'm just playing, I'm playing. I'm only driving 10 minutes a day to work, so don't worry about me. But I am pumped up. I'm grateful to be here. It's 2017. It's crazy. It's almost Black History Month already. I feel like the year just started. So we're gonna get into the podcast, but it's crazy. It's almost it's almost February. And I hope everybody's New Year's resolutions are, are coming in full circle. If somebody had them, for those that didn't, I hope whatever you're working on is coming in the full circle. And I pray that this podcast that you're listening to now adds some type of value to your life because I'm telling y'all, it's going to be phenomenal, historic. The person that we have on our line, dude bought his brother a house at 25. He bought his own house at 24. And when he tells about the story, where he came from, up until seventh grade, he almost got held back every single year showing his growth showing his story and now in August he will be the newest member of the Harvard School of Business this dude is on it and he's just very humble but he's very direct and for all those been saying yo Greg I'm feeling the podcast you are talking about emotions you talking about stories but I'm a business guy like where can I get some principles that can help me get more organized some principles that can help me get more clients some principles that can, can get help me some more technical stuff. I got you on this interview. My man lays it down, and I'm gonna read a snippet of his bio before before I get into it. And also, I do want to say, please bear with me. The first 15 minutes, I, you know, you all know me. I love to talk, I love to ramble a little bit, so it takes us a while to get into it. But I'm telling y'all, this interview is jam packed with value. Definitely stay tuned towards the end because. He will be visiting a lot of major cities, talking for those that are interested in investigating and investigating. Let me not share too much, but I'm telling y'all, stay through the whole episode. My guest has a phenomenal story, very articulate, and as y'all can tell, I'm pumped up to get into the show. Also, you will know this show is going out on Thursday. Hold me accountable. Until 2018, outside of our our break between season three and season four, if you do not see a podcast on Thursday, shout me up on Twitter and say you're a liar. Hold me accountable, Greg. Here, where's the podcast? I I ain't missing no shows
1: unless
0: unless after season three and like ten episodes, we're gonna go on a month hiatus and get back to season four and get bigger, get bigger, get better, get better. Let's get it. So I will also note this is a very technical technical bio. So don't get lost because he's a, he's, a, he's on Wall Street. That's where he grew up from. So don't get lost with the Wall Street stuff. We're going to dig deeper into his story after that, but let's get into it. Our guest today is an associate at Morgan Stanley within company management, where he assists a vice chairman and senior client advisor in increasing client connectivity and penetrating to, invan- to enhance revenue generation across the firm. He joined Morgan Stanley in 2011 as an investment banking analyst, covering consumer and retail companies. In this role, he developed dynamic models to perform LBO, M&A, DCF analysis. Don't worry about that. We'll get into that interview. Conducted extensive due diligence while evaluating strategic opportunities for company management and provided strategic advice for clients from both buy-side and sell-side perspectives and transactions value over $50 million. Following this role, he transitioned to sales and trading, where he assisted a senior relationship manager in covering Morgan Stanley's largest clients, analyzed third-party data on business across institutional securities to identify incremental revenue potential, and developed action plans that were presented to Morgan Stanley's president of institutional securities. He also holds a bachelor's of science with a concentration in finance, legal studies, and business ethics from the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business. He remains actively involved in Penn's alumni community as both the recruiting director for Penn's virtual alumni interview program, as well as the interview chair for Northeastern PEP schools. He is also active with two nonprofit organizations, Management Leadership for Tomorrow and Sponsors for Educational Opportunity. And as mentioned previously, he is an upcoming member of the class of two 2019 Harvard School of Business mind you while working in undergrad he worked three jobs and paid his way through school while still being president of his freshman class and holding president of Black Warden Student Association and a plethora of other different things so this guy is a hard worker he's a grinder and he has a very very direct diverse humorous at times in real story and I guarantee you're going to leave this podcast inspired and encouraged to be more, to do more and of course to live more. So without further ado, I would like to introduce my brother Tristan Francis to the Minority Trailblazer podcast.
1: Welcome to the show thank you really appreciate it greg
0: <laughs> well hey let's, let's go ahead and jump in so as customary you already know we always start the show off with a quote so tristan please share with our audience a quote that you live by and a story on why that quote is so important to you
1: yeah i'd say i'm gonna go to with dr seuss on this one <laughs> and i would say be who you are and say how you feel because those who mind don't matter uh and those who matter don't mind and actually as i'm saying it i uh I realized I got the quote wrong. So let me say it. (laughs) Let me say it again. I'm going to go with Dr. Seuss. Uh, The quote is Be who you are and say how you feel because those who matter don't mind and those who mind don't matter. And I really think that that's something I try to live by more and more, especially these days, because I feel like there's a lot of temptation to fit a certain mold. So to go down one particular path as opposed to really going after what it is that you want to do and i think you know one example where i've lived by this and seen really good results is you know, over over the years especially kind of after having graduated from penn after having gone to wall street been on wall street for a few years i found a lot of people kind of reaching out to me and i loved it when these people would reach out to me just asking you know how to break into the industry but i wanted to be able to scale that i wanted to be able to reach more people so Uh, in addition to the one-on-one conversations, which I would have really on a daily basis, multiple times a day basis, I started to actually scale those efforts. I started to host what started as monthly events turned into almost weekly events in New York City, where I would go and I would speak with groups ranging from 30 to 150 upwards sometimes. Mm -hmm. And it just allowed me to reach more people. Um, I know that, you know, when I was, thinking through this idea, I, I had some people who were like, I love, I love the idea. It makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it, it's going to have a big impact. I had other people who had kind of trepidations of kind of going out on my own and just kind of doing my own thing as opposed to sticking with maybe company organized events or more structured wor- ways of kind of getting to them. And so, you know, I just decided to, to go for it. And I think that's a, a theme that I've come across is, you know, thinking up an idea and going for it, not everybody's going to love the idea, but you will have a support team behind you of people who do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, you know, as long as your heart is in the right place, I, what I've found is that the result tends to be there. And so, I, you know, I think even though that Dr. Seuss quote is pretty elementary, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that it's impactful in my life.
0: Man, that's, 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 that's great. And I already got two questions just off that. The first is, how was that first event where you said, OK. I'm um, doing this one-on-one and this is, I know you're, you're, you're technical and like time. But it's like, I'm doing an hour one person. So let me do this event. How was the first event? How'd you get the word out? Like, and I know it wasn't no grandiose event. It was more so probably like a coffee side chat, but how, how did you get the word, um, out about what you were doing and, 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 and yeah. how was it framed?
1: Yeah. So the, the actual, the very first event that kind of kicked everything off in my head happened actually not that long ago. It happened, uh, September, 2016. Mm -hmm. And my, so Wharton hosts what they call an alumni colloquial where they bring alumni back to campus to give talks on various different subjects and they leave it up to the alumni to give talks on, to, Decide what subject they want to talk on and and some of the talks are on personal finance some of the talks are on the hedge fund industry in my case I decided to speak on the difference between relationship building and networking just Mm -hmm. because in my one-on-one conversations a lot of the questions I got were around well how do you build out relationships with senior people at your company how do you break into new industries and so I felt like that was a subject that was going to resonate with a lot of people Uh, so I was invited back to speak at this event. And the event that I hosted, it ended up being kind of standing room only. A hundred plus people there. Uh, one of, if not the most, kind of attended talk at this one particular event. Mm-hmm. Um, and the feedback was really just kind of resounding from from the students. And so that kind of kicked off the true idea in my head of, of scaling it because I thought to myself, okay, I came back to Penn, was able to you know do this talk, talk to hundred students all in one setting, and then I just thought to myself. I'm in New York City and there's so many schools around me. So if this content, if, if the Penn community like this content, you know, I bet the people over at Baruch, Queens College, Mm -hmm. Columbia, NYU, Pace University, Hunter College, I bet they would love the content as well. And that, you know, the schools I listed was just a small sample, obviously of the broad, broad, broad schools in New York City. And so I decided to come back to New York and through my, really through my MLT, through my SEO network, I was able to get in touch with students at these schools, and so I reached out to somebody through really people that I have kind of mentored in my life before, and mentioned what I was looking to do, and they were like, "Absolutely, you know, I know the v- the the president of this student group, I know the president of that student group. We'll just throw something together." And so I really started just throwing these events together on the back of that one uh, pen event, and they just continued to they just continued to scale, and then I started going to you know, nonprofit organizations in New York City, I started Mm -hmm. going to high schools in New York City. So it it really kicked off with this one event at Penn, but I used that that showed me that the kind of need and the desire for this content was there. And then I just took it back to, to New York City to try and scale it. And of course, you know, New York is a is a great city when it comes to scaling things.
0: Yeah, and um, I guess, and not to not to get too deep on it, but if you can give, um, uh, because I know we have audiences that that range career career paths and career things, and I know I've I, just off that I was taking those got some nuggets from it, but for somebody that's listening to the show right now, and maybe their career is not at investment banking, but they had a expertise in some field, whether it be Photoshop, whether it be speaking, whether it be sales, what whatever field it may be, what do you think is one essential thing that they can do to really? Start the, those one-on-one conversations, these emails they get, and then really start building something like that you're that you're currently building um, in their mm-hmm. own space.
1: Yeah, I, I think the the number one piece of advice that I have would be to just go out there and do it. Mm-hmm. And the first time that you do it, it might not be as clean as you would want it to be. But the second time you do it, it's going to be a little bit better. The third time you do it, it's going to be even better. And then you're just going to get into a rhythm, and you're going to start to build a following. Mm-hmm. And so I think the biggest hesitation uh, that I certainly had, and I think that a lot of people have when they have ideas, is they just don't want to release it until it's ready. Mm-hmm. And I kind of have a, you know, the mindset that I think a lot of people in, in, the, in the technology world or a lot of entrepreneurs oftentimes have, and that you kind of just got to go before your gut is ready sometimes and mm-hmm. use that as a learning lesson to propel yourself forward with the idea that you want to move with. And so for anybody who has a skill, whether it be photography, whether it be art, anybody who has something that they feel like is beautiful or powerful and they want to share it with the world, my advice would be just start to share it and then you'll figure out how to share it in a more effective way with time and practice.
0: Amen. And I think you hit on another way. The one of the more effective ways as well is looking into the organizations which you've worked on in the past. And for some of y'all might not have been in the MLT SEO program, but some people, everybody has a church as well. And church is the like, I, church is the best testing. Sorry, Lord. I, it is, but church is a great testing ground, especially if you're young and you're not trying to sell cut, cutware or something like that. Like if you have something that's innovative, you have a skill that is the, cause you, especially if you attend church, uh, for those that do it, that do. That is one of the best places to start. Like, okay, I want to be a speaker. Have you spoken at your church? Nah. Or I want to be a writer. I, shoot, write a book and have your church. Like, like have a, a community that already supports you, which he had, MLT, SEO, and then others, the people he mentored, and then start there because that can be your initial 10 to 20 people. It don't got to be 100 like his standing room only. If you have 10 people that really, like, are into your talk— Them TPM people know two other people, and that could turn to 30, which could turn to 50, 60. But the problem is sometimes we don't even look where we already have networks. We just start to start on our own and put a Facebook post rather than let's think. I know I'm involved with at least two to three organizations off top, whether it's a school, a church or another organization I volunteer with. And let's start leveraging those communities like you have and which is growing. I think you also spoke on um, why mentoring is so important, because I I just thought about it. I was like, wow, mentoring is kind of like a two edged sword where you're helping somebody, especially if you're younger, you're helping somebody. But also in three to five years, that same person you're helping, especially helping somebody and you get them to another level. Being that they're on another level, they're gonna have their own following, their own things, and then you can be able to use that. So um, that's great. Also, last question, and this is a broad question, a big question that probably be like, yo, gee, why you answer that? But why are so many people so thirsty? To be on Wall Street. I know we haven't even got to your personal background yet. We're gonna get there, but because I'm telling you, after I put out this thing on LinkedIn or on our show, talking about we're talking about Harvard, highlighting the Wall Street, you already got a lot of people emailing you now. It's gonna be a lot more people trying to get mm-hmm. contacted and whatnot. People are so thirsty to be on Wall Street. So, in your in your frame of reference, because I know you're still young, but why mm-hmm. do you think that it's so intense? People are just trying to get cut into that industry.
1: Yeah, I think. There are really two things I think that make it really attractive. The first, and I would be lying and not giving <laughs> you full information if I didn't tell you it's just an industry that pays extremely well. Mm-hmm. And if I go back to my childhood, that was kind of something that I was always focused on, you know, mm-hmm. because my family, I grew up in a setting, a humble upbringing, didn't have much money amongst my family. And the idea of making money was something that everybody, myself, everybody in my community, Generally, you know, a community of people from a low income background, everybody was focused on, okay, well, what is actually going to pay me now, I didn't know as a kid that you could graduate from you could graduate from college and by sitting behind a computer screen, you could make you know well over a hundred thousand dollars a year in your first year out of college. I didn't know that that was feasible. I didn't know that that was possible. That was more money than you know my that was more money than anybody in my family had ever seen in a single year, for sure, mm-hmm. um, and and probably close to what everybody in my family had seen kind of collectively in a single year. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, certainly makes a difference. You know, being able to give back to my mom, being able to give back to my brothers, being able to actually support my family financially makes a difference. You know, I when I was twenty four years old, I bought my first place for myself uh, in, in the Columbus circle area. And when I was 25 years old, I was able to buy a place for my oldest brother and been able to take my mom on vacations. Like that adds up to real dollars. And now I don't spend my money foolishly. I'm very frugal, but you know, taking my mom on vacations, buying a place for myself, buying a place for my brother. I think those are worthwhile things to kind of spend your money on education. Like Harvard's going to be very expensive. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a worthwhile expenditure. Um, so I'm very frugal with my money, but you know, I've, I've been fortunate to make a lot of it on wall street. And I think that there, it's a very lucrative career. So I'll start off by saying that and putting (laughs) that out
0: there. And now everybody Um, else in there, everybody didn't even (laughs) think about wall street. They're going to be like, okay, I need to jump in (laughs) that thing too. Thank you, Tristan. (laughs)
1: Um, and you know, I think the second reason it's really attractive would be the skill set. So when you are 21 years old out of undergrad and you go to wall street, You'll be talking to and, – and when I say talking to, let me actually clarify that because it's it, – you'll be on in the conversation, in the room, on the conference call with the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, the CFOs of Fortune 500 companies having incredibly high-level business conversations that most people in other industries, they are not in that room for 20 years into their career. And you're immediately just thrown into the room and the amount of responsibility that you're given within my first year on Wall Street, I had a CFO of one of the companies that we were working with who, when that person had questions, they would pick up the phone and they would call me directly wow. to answer their questions. That is extraordinary for somebody who's 21, 22 you know, years old. And it just forces you to learn very quickly. And so when I was in undergrad thinking to myself, where do I want to go after college? And I saw some of these investment bankers coming back to my campus and I interacted with them through organizations like Sponsors for Educational Opportunity and through Management Leadership for Tomorrow and the alum of those organizations. And I was interacting with them and I was just blown away with with the amount of responsibility their companies were giving them, the amount of skills they had, the poise they had, their ability to communicate, their ability to multitask. It really is just a training ground for really building out just an incredible skill set, and and it, it pays off. I mean, if you look, if you look at the bios of a lot of senior people throughout corporate America, if you look at where they started in their career, you will very, you will oftentimes see some kind of finance or some banking experience uh, in in their bio, mm-hmm. because I think it just gives you a tool set. That allows you to walk into any setting and and add some value and so those were really the two things that I that I was pursuing when I decided to go to Wall Street one was I did want something that was going to be lucrative and two I wanted a skill set that was going to make me valuable in any team setting
0: got you man that's that's phenomenal I got a plethora of all questions but I said let me let me save that for the the present day round going towards that because I want to dig deep into your past. So for the people out there that's already salivating, like I want to know how to da da da. like hold on, hold your horses for like 15 minutes. I know everybody's a lot of people that's listening is probably going to be tuning in are going to be asking some more. They want some more pointed questions on getting in that industry and then a lot of myths with that industry as well, which I would like for you to address, too, because me coming from a I was in finance, but, you know, corporate finance and investment are totally different worlds they like in different things so you hear a lot about um corporate investment banking and whatnot and i want to kind of hopefully you can kind of clear up some rumors or you can um validate some some rumors that we hear about it but before we get into that let's jump into deep dive into your story like your origin story who you are and where you're from because you spoke a little bit about it but please tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your journey um up until college and and what kind of made you the man that you are today
1: yeah. So my journey growing up looks very different from my journey through college and now. And so I'll kind of get into that. Growing up, I struggled a lot academically. I was on the verge of being left back pretty much every single grade until the seventh grade. It was the same story year after year. Uh, math would, tended to be there. I I, I enjoyed math. Uh, reading. I never read a book from cover to cover until the seventh grade and just really fell behind. And it was difficult. I started to feel self-conscious. I mentioned that I had two older brothers. The one, the middle brother, uh, his name's and he was very academically oriented, always in the kind of New York City talented and gifted programs. In addition to just being academically oriented and very smart. He also worked incredibly hard. So he was able to get himself into another nonprofit organization, which if, if you guys know kind of, you know, kids, youth throughout you, New York city, definitely make sure that they know about this program called prep for prep. Oh, oh
0: man. I I mm -hmm. saw a CNN special about that.
1: Yeah. it, It takes high achieving students from low income communities and helps them get into very competitive boarding schools. And what and so my brother got into this uh, prep for prep program and it meant it meant that he had to give up his summers where most people are out playing basketball, everything like that. He had to give up his summers. He had to go and take extra courses over the summers, not because he was struggling, but actually the opposite, because he was a high performer and and people wanted to push him even further mm-hmm. and, you know, give up Saturdays, really give up a lot of time and and, and dedicate a lot to this. Um, and he did that, and and ended up through this organization, prep for prep, getting placed in this boarding school in Massachusetts called Eaglebrook, and that was a game changer for him. And I, I applied for prep for prep, but again, given how non-academically oriented I was growing up, I couldn't get into prep for prep. Mm-hmm. But in what you know, I really view is my mom does a lot of incredible things for me and my brothers, but without a doubt, what I kind of of you as one of the single best parenting acts. My mom just went straight to the boarding school in Massachusetts and basically talked with them and said, the older brother's here, he's doing well. Is there any, any way you can just, you know, take a chance, take Tristan as well. And they did. So they kind of got a two for one special, my family. (laughs) And uh, they decided that even though I wasn't where most of the people they admitted to the school, even though I wasn't where they were, they were going to take a chance on me on the basis that my older brother Timon was there and he was doing well as he always has done. Um, so they, they, they took a chance on me there. Uh, when I got to this boarding school, I'm 11, it's seventh grade. I'm 11 years old when I started uh, in seventh grade. And that without a doubt was the, was the most insecure moment of my life because unlike my older brother, I didn't deserve to be there academically. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I didn't feel smart enough to speak up in any classroom setting. And then on top of that, you know, me and my me and my older brother probably made up 25 to 40 per, to 50% of the black population on that campus, and I'm from Jamaica Queens, I'm I'm used to very diverse settings. This was very far from a from a diverse setting, and so there was a little bit of a culture shock there as well and a, a a very big even more important than the actual cuz you know for me black white doesn't really matter uh you know so this was a little bit of a and and to kind of get my background my my dad is jamaican my mom is white her heritage is russian and Czechoslovakian. Wow. um mm-hmm. and so i'm i'm mixed myself and so it's not like at all you know i'm uncomfortable around people from other races cuz that's not the case i'm very multicultural myself But what I was uncomfortable with was a lot of the people that I was around at that stage, they grew up from very wealthy backgrounds and there Mm -hmm. weren't a, a lot of people in that environment who grew up from a humble setting. And so, you know, I wasn't even comfortable having kind of conversations with people in social settings. And so if you look at my entire day in seventh grade, I'm basically going through entire days where I'm not talking to anybody. And that's and that's very lonely. And I wanted to basically, I wanted to go back home. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only reason I didn't go home was because even though at age 11, I couldn't understand why my mom really wanted me in this school. And she would have let me come back home if I said I wanted to go back home. But I could just tell that for whatever reason, I, I just felt it in my gut. I was like, my mom really wants me to be here. This is important to her. Like, Let me just let me stay. Let me try and figure out how to be happy in this setting. And uh, and for the first, you know, I'm 11 years old for my first few months at this boarding school in Massachusetts, I every, you know, I pretty much, I had, a, I had a roommate bunk beds, that whole situation every night when the lights would cut out, I would cry myself to sleep for, you know, a month, two months, Man. um, just kind of, you know, and didn't really feel like there was anybody that I could, could, could talk to about any of this stuff. Um, including, including my, my brother, not because he wouldn't have been open to talking to it. But because i again, I just kind of felt like sub sub uh self conscious because I know that he didn't have the same type of academic struggles ever, and so I just didn't wanna i didn't you know i didn't also didn't wanna be weak in my older brother's eyes and not yeah. to say that he wouldn't have been supportive but but I didn't even that that's the one logical outlet that well he was on campus you could have gone to him, but like in my head i I couldn't even go to him yeah um and so there was just nothing for me and so what I decided to do was I couldn't change the fact that I was in the, no, in the middle of nowhere, Massachusetts. That's where the school was located. I couldn't change the fact that my family didn't grow up. I didn't have a wealthy upbringing. That, that is what it is. But what I could change the fact was that the academic piece I could change. And so what I started doing is I started just dedicating all of my time to academics. And to the you know what I will say about this school is the, the faculty at this school were extremely supportive, and you know, they saw how hard I was working. And basically I had professors pull me aside that was like, hey, you know, would you like some extra coaching on X, Y, and Z? X, Y, and Z being everything from math, which I was already okay at, but they helped me get to another level, to to reading, which I needed a lot of work on, to Spanish, to whatever the subject was. The teachers there just pulled me aside and were like, Hey, you know, I, I heard that you you've been working really hard and you're trying to catch up and you're really focused. Folk- And, and so that coaching, and that's where I just started to adopt this habit of taking advantage of everything, every opportunity that people were giving to me. And so if somebody was offering me an extra help session, I never said no, Mm -hmm. I, you know, and, and so that, that type of mentality allowed me to catch up, allowed me to start to feel a little bit more, a little bit more comfortable on campus, a little bit more comfortable in my own skin. And I just kind of took that mentality And started running with it, you know, and this school, it goes up until ninth grade and then you graduate and everybody goes to other boarding schools. And so, you know, I remember by the time ninth grade rolls around, you know, every single class has the superlatives that they give out. So the superlative that I ended up winning was hardest working um, because not only did the the teachers see it, but the, the peers certainly saw it as well. So I was like, I was really gunning for this thing from like seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, um, Made a lot of progress, ended up going to a boarding school in New Jersey called uh, the Petty School. It's in Heightstown, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And when I got to that school, you know, I, I was happy for a couple of reasons. I was happy because I, I did get on into that school on my own academic merit. So mm-hmm. I wasn't.
0: No plus wasn't, one anymore. It was like, it's just right. Tristan here. <laughs> ah.
1: <laughs> yeah, no plus one anymore. Now, my brother, my brother was at that school. But I say that I get in got into it on my own academic merit because I applied to a bunch of different high school prep boarding schools, and I got into most of the ones that I applied to. so I don't I felt like my academic caliber had been proved through that process. I ultimately decided to go to the one that my brother was at in New Jersey. I loved the school. he loved the school and logistically going to the same one made it a little bit easier for my mom. And mm-hmm. so, you know, in my head, this was a great school. Why why not go to it? My brother's there, he's doing well. And now, you know, I, I kind of felt like I could be my own academic man, so to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went to this school and I think the thing so started there in tenth grade. I think the thing that differentiated me at that point was now finally like I had the academic chops, but on top of the academic chops, I was willing to work kind of unnat- unnaturally hard for somebody who's 14 years old. Um, just because I had gone through that experience of feeling really inadequate and never wanted to experience that feeling in my gut again. And so the, my willingness to just put my head down and work, uh, at this new high school, I just kept going. And that's, that's what allowed me, you know, in, in Massachusetts, I really went from struggling to on par. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was a huge turnaround. And then, you know, in New Jersey, this next boarding school, that's where I feel like I went from on par to really, you know, taking off to somebody who can kind of go to an Ivy League school to somebody who kind of can can call their shot in terms of the academic direction that they wanted to have. And that was mainly my X factor, you know, was just my ability to kind of work hard, my ability to really to really push it. Um, And so I think that that was kind of what my high school experience was like. Uh, I had focused, you know, at this point, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, and twelfth grade, focused primarily on my academics. So, one thing I will say about my high school self is I was very shy and introverted. Um, I was actually, I've been shy and introverted my whole life. I still am introverted. I think the shyness has faded a little bit, but I am certainly still introverted. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I. And my mom always tells these stories of uh, when I was in Sunday school, and she would go and she would talk to the other people at the church. Uh, apparently, some of the people who led Sunday schools actually thought that I was mute, <laughs> like 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 physically mute. And 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 there was one person who, after a while, heard me say something to my mom, just like when she picked me up one day, and she pulled my mom aside and said, "He can speak." And my mom, <laughs> my mom was like, "Yeah, yeah," he and so. I just would not speak, um, and so I, that's kind of been the case for a long time. And Then, obviously, the whole Massachusetts experience and feeling inadequate that only took a, you know, a shyness and introversion to another level. And so, basically, we're in, we're at high school at this point. I, I feel like I'm, you know, doing a lot academically, but I, I still am very shy and introverted. And so, when I get to college, now I'm like, okay, I have the academic piece down.
0: Quick question. Let me. Yep. Quick question before, because I know you're about to get in your zone. Quick question, before you get to college, I, I, I just, it was just on my head, because I've heard about it in another podcast, but I just wanted to ask, hopefully I don't break up the flow, is, Godwin, um, in, in, in 10, 20 years, if you plan to have a family, you had children, would you send your children to a public school or a private school?
1: It certainly depends on what my financial situation is. Mm-hmm. I think that if you're in a public school with a good zip code, I think you can get your kids a good education and private school does not become necessary. Mm -hmm. If you are not in the right zip code, then as unfortunate as and and unfair as that is, I do think you need to get them into a private school. Um, now I think if I fast forward, I will be in a good enough situation to send my kids wherever I want financially. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I anticipate being in that position. Um, the reality is when I think about my future, and it's a it's a blessing to be ever to say, to be able to say this, but I don't think that money will ever be an issue in my life. Mm-hmm. Fortunate because of where I started my career, because of where I went to undergrad, because I'm where I'm going to business school, because of those networks, and because of my drive. I the combination of that means I'm not gonna have to worry about money. Now, that being said. Although I could become very ultra wealthy if that were my goal, that's not necessarily my goal. So I can see a lot of different life outcomes. Say I go into something that's nonprofit related. Say I go into something that's public service related. I can see a lot of impact, a lot of paths where I don't become ultra wealthy. I'll become wealthy even if I go the nonprofit route, Mm -hmm. but maybe I won't become ultra wealthy. If I'm wealthy, then it may make more sense for, for my eventual kids to be in a public school setting. And you know, and maybe it's public school until, you know, tenth grade. And mm-hmm. then in tenth grade, getting in that private school network. Because what a lot of these private school networks have that's different, it's not necessarily the education that's different. But it's some of those other services. As an example, mm. the, the, the college career counseling and the, the relationship that the prep school college career counselors have with the universities, it's a game changer. And so that's how there's basically oh. a pipeline from these competitive prep schools into these top colleges. It's, it's these phenomenal – I'm still in touch with my college counselor from high school, and he's phenomenal – And he single-handedly can help get people into higher tier schools, so to say, just because he's really good at what he does. Now, that's the kind of thing that you have access to in a prep school that you don't necessarily have the same access to in, in a public school. So it's not that you can't get the great education in a public school because you can, but I think some of those other services are just taken to another level in the private school setting. So, I'm on the fence in terms of whether or not my, you know, and I do want to have a family one day, but I'm on the fence in terms of whether or not my kids would go to private school versus public school. And I think a lot of it is going going to boil down into the numbers. Now, if I end up ultra wealthy and it isn't even a consideration, like, you know, the the monetary check to these schools isn't even a consideration, then yes, I would be sending my kids to, to private school.
0: Next question. Next question. Sue. if you if you had one word to describe your experience at UPenn undergrad, what would it be, and then tell us why you chose that word?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh The one word would be transformational. And the reason I use the the word transformational is because Penn, and I think you know, it's the only undergraduate college I went to. So I, but I think that other college, I think it's just the reality of college, completely. I could pick the part of myself that I wanted to change or wanted to make better, and I could just transform it into what I wanted. And so I think there were really two examples I saw of that. The first one, as I mentioned, I was very shy and introverted in high school in my whole life. I wanted to change that when I got to college. And the first thing that I decided to do when I got to Penn was I decided to, that I wanted to join student government. Not very easy, for somebody to do when they're shy and introverted. But yeah. I forced myself I forced myself to do it. I forced myself out of the com- my comfort zone. I went to, you know, every single one of the freshman dormitories. I went door to door. I knocked on doors. I I actually kind of, I met my my girlfriend my freshman year. I met her while campaigning for student government. Ooh. Um so a lot, a lot of positives came out of it <laughs> beyond beyond student government, but but really I think that I just kind of forced myself to do this. And then I ended up getting elected to student government. I'm blanking on what the exact numbers were. But I remember distinctly that it was literally by one vote. So I had like 333 votes and the person below me had like 332 votes or something of that nature. And I got, you know, got one of the seats on student government. And for me, that was a big moment because here I am, this person who's been shy my whole life. And I was able to be elected by my peers to represent them to the administration of the school in my freshman year. And it was just, it was a powerful moment. And it gave me this motivation, like, okay, I can, you know, I can do whatever it else it is that I want to do. I if I set my if I set my mind to it and go for it. And so that was the first experience that 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 I think really resonates with that word transformational. And the second experience was every single freshman has to take a writing seminar. And I took one, the topic that you take is kind of up to you. I took one on homelessness and urban inequality. And at the end of the writing seminar, I remember my professor pulling me aside and basically giving me a heads up. He was like, just so you know, I'm going to be giving you a B in this course. And I know that a B is much less than you were expecting or more than you would want and what you, given how much you were working for this. But he was like, candidly, a B is very generous, given the quality of your writing. And the way he said was the, is the best possible way, purely from a good place. But he was basically pulling me aside to say, if you want to be successful during your time at Penn, it's not going to be about work ethic because you've worked harder than any anybody else in this class, is what he basically told me. Mm-hmm. But it is going to be about skill when it comes to writing. And so he was like, whatever you have to do, I encourage you to figure out this whole writing thing very quickly. And so I did that. In my second semester, I signed up for another writing seminar, even though you don't have to take two. And a lot of times, again, going back to sometimes I do things that people look at me and they're like, you're crazy. Uh, Why are you signing up for another one of these when you don't have to? But I wanted to do it right. I wanted to get it right this time around. So I signed up for a second one. And this time I ended up getting an A in it. The thing that I did differently is I took every single paper that I wrote to the writing center at least once before submitting it. And every time you book one of these appointments, you have to log it online. And I remember at the end of the semester, the director of the writing center who had been the director of the writing center for over 10 years, she basically pulled me aside and she said, in a single semester, I think you've used the writing center more than any student that I've seen in Penn's history, and she basically said <laughs> wow. and she basically said, "Would you like to be would you like to be a writing tutor?" And wow. in my head, I'm thinking to myself, last semester, I have a professor tell me I can barely write this semester, I have the director of the writing seminar telling me that i that she wants me to coach my peers on writing and her rationale, which didn't initially make sense to me but eventually made sense as she went on to explain, was basically I work with every single writing tutor in the center. So I know the difference – I know what makes a tutor good versus areas where tutors can kind of improve just because I work with everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and clearly I understand the value of – the writing center because I've used it so much. And she said the combination between those two plus, you know, I got an A in the last writing seminar and that that's the only requirement for becoming a writing tutor. So she was like, your content's there as well. And so she was basically like, I would love for you to be a tutor, ended up becoming a tutor to become a tutor. You have to take another class. So most people take one. I ultimately had to take the additional one. So this was my third writing seminar. But in that third one, I really fell in love with writing and I decided then to actually in my sophomore year, I applied to a national essay competition from an organization called the Executive Leadership Council, mm-hmm. which is an organization for the most senior blacks throughout corporate America. Yeah, it's so, crazy.
0: Yep, I know I know mm-hmm. exactly about them. they gave, uh, I think, $200,000 to a summer camp I work with is North Carolina Central. Oh, wow. So, yep, I know wow. exactly about them.
1: Okay. Awesome. I didn't even realize I didn't even realize they do that, but in addition to that, they also host a national essay competition. And the essay competition, I'm blanking on the exact prompt, but in short it was something to the effect of how can corporations and educational institutions better work together in order to serve their members. And I remember just kind of seeing this prompt and being like, okay, this is kind of like I'm a basketball player and this is kind of like when you get the perfect pass and you're just like, you know, you, it's, it's almost, a le- like you know, it's going to be a lot of work, but you've been set up as nicely as somebody can set you up. Just
0: finish the job.
1: And so I got that. And so I have never worked so hard on an essay my entire life. Um, you know, I ended up working on this thing tirelessly for months. Uh, was one of the ten essay winners from around the country, um, and the all of the winners they flew them into New York for a week long gala. I mean, Penn is in Philly, so for me it was just a train ride. But people, you know, one of the essay winners was from Stanford, another one I think was from somewhere in LA. So they basically flew all of this this cohort of ten essay winners to New York, where we met with a bunch of the different Executive Leadership Council members. So we met with. Ken Chenault, who's the CEO of American Express. Uh, we met with uh, Christopher Williams, who founded a very successful uh, financial institution. Uh, we met with a number of these different business executives, um, and they have this gala. And at this gala, there's a woman, and she she works at Morgan Stanley. Her name is Carla Harris, uh, absolutely, without a doubt, one of the most inspiring, incredible per- people that I've ever come across in my life. Uh, and she was given this keynote and, and and for her quick background she's been on Wall Street for 30 years anybody who's black and is interested in Wall Street should google Carla Harris letter to my 25 year old self mm-hmm. and you'll get a little bit of a flavor for what i'm talking about um but she's been at Morgan Stanley for about 30 years she in addition to being a banker she's also a gospel singer she's had sold out concerts at Carnegie Hall oh she's i know you're perf- talking about she's you know, performed at Madison Square Garden. She's written best selling books. She's chair of one of President Obama's national councils. And so, just absolutely incredible story. She was the keynote at this event, and it was the first time that I had heard her speak. And so, she spoke. I went up to her after the event and basically told her, Carla, I'm interested in Morgan Stanley. If I end up at Morgan Stanley, can we sit down and have a conversation? Carla's one of those incredible people who always tries to help where she can. And so, she was like, absolutely. And so, I did that when I ended up getting to Morgan Stanley. But before we kind of fast forward to that, just to kind of recap, I you know again going back to that word transformational, I went from really struggling in writing to becoming a writing tutor to winning this national essay competition, and the reward for all that transformation was certainly kind of you know not only the scholarship money, but more importantly this interaction with Carla, um, who I actually that's who I report to today at Morgan Stanley, and so it it all really came full circle. But when I think about my experience at Penn, it really is, it really just was this incredible transformative experience that, you know, it's going to be a part of my life for the rest of my life. And, and and anybody who kind of knows me within the Penn community knows that I'm a complete geek when it comes to my school in terms of pride. <laughs> um, so, you know, I use the, our school colors are red and blue and I use the red and blue heart emojis oftentimes if I'm going to sign off on a, on an email that says something pen related. <laughs> so they, they, they know, they know that I, that I'm absolutely in love with the school. And the reason I'm in love with the school is it, it, it is a very special, it is a very special place. And it was for me and it was absolutely transformative
0: amen 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 so before i move on to um that we talk a little bit more about investing Megan and talk about uh future in business school i did want to ask this question i saw i saw it um while reading your bio and you worked for for when you were the president of black wharton the association at at at, at penn i saw that you raised eighty eight thousand dollars in corporate sponsorship um mm-hmm. how were you able to do that
1: yeah i was able to do that so a couple of things wharton just has a phenomenal brand yeah um and that meant attraction from corporate sponsors Mm -hmm. and so what we were able to do there was basically go to these corporate sponsors and say hey we know you're really focused on diversity we have a collection of what we believe to be the most promising undergraduates diverse candidates that you could possibly get in touch with this was this is you know this is the pitch that we're given if you you know write a check uh you know for x thousands of dollars um and there were different tiers that they could write, sign in on. We will give you access to our members through an exclusive event where we'll kind of brand you. You'll be able to get the word out in terms of your opportunities. We'll prepare the members in the way that you would like us to prepare the members. We'll basically give you on a platter your top diverse talent. And companies were, you know, extremely receptive to that. And the 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 amount that the that the organization asks for, it's actually. It's a very reasonable ask that they're making in terms of the sponsorship dollars. And so we usually, if anything, just the difficulty that we have, it's almost we have more. I'm not going to say we have more sponsors than we would need, but this organization is, is just a, you know, has built a phenomenal brand for itself. And we're able to leverage that and organizations will come to us. And there are some circumstances where we have to tell organizations, we actually can't take your scholarship dollar just because we're working with too many companies and we need to be able to deliver a good product to all of them. And you can't prepare everybody for everything. So you got to pick and choose based on what our members are interested. You got to pick and choose the corporate sponsors that best align with that. And so we're able to get a number of corporate sponsors. Morgan Stanley is one of those corporate sponsors. Uh, very active with the corporate with, with this organization in particular. Um And, and that's really how we raised the money was by, you know, just delivering something that these companies, that these companies needed.
0: Yeah. And, and, um, and I I get what you're saying because in a day, if you look at, if you if you're privy to the knowledge of how much money these companies really do spend on diversity and recruitment they spend millions and millions and millions so if you try mm-hmm. if you five ten thousand dollars or twenty thousand and you got your this is this may be wrong or right it's a question that i is over my pay grade to already have your diversity um check mark from an ivy league school then shoot that's a that's twenty thousand world spent um yep. if you can if- get your diversity quota and then still have it from your target schools for a company, I mean it's just like, oh how I I can't write a check any bigger. <laughs> to find yeah, that.
1: I, absolutely. And what we found is that the organizations that wrote the check, they are very, very, very happy with that check. It is well worth the spend in their opinion. And you know, it, it leaves the organization with more than enough money that we need to to self fund ourselves and to do some pretty remarkable things for our members.
0: Yeah. And um, and before and, and we're about to transition to that, how did you even get into Oh, you already kind of explained your your segue into Investor Bacon? That was with Carla, right?
1: It was even... with it was with Carla. So by the time I had met Carla, this was in my so I won the essay competition was in my sophomore year, but the actual gala was in the first semester of my junior year. By the time I had met Carla, so the summer after my freshman year, I interned at Google in a sales out in, in California for 10 weeks. Mm-hmm. And then the summer after my sophomore year, I interned at Goldman within Wealth Management for 10 weeks. Mm-hmm. And I, f- from both Google and Goldman, I had return offers to go back to the fir- to each of the companies. Morgan Stanley, I really had my heart set on Morgan Stanley. Uh, I just felt like it was the right culture. I oh, had some Goldman? mentors who was the Absolutely. Um, how was the culture different? Uh, the cultures are very different. And I'm not going to say one is right versus one is wrong, but mm-hmm. one is right for me. Mm-hmm. And for me, I did feel more comfortable. I felt more comfortable approaching some of the senior people. I felt more comfortable asking for help. I felt more comfortable just expressing who I am as a person, what my beliefs were. Uh, and I didn't feel that same level of comfort at Goldman. So, yes. You know, I had an offer to go to Goldman and, you know, a lot of people, again, this goes back to that Dr. Seuss quote. A lot of people were telling me, you have an offer from Goldman. Why are you going through recruiting right now? And I would look at them and I would say, because I want to be a Morgan Stanley. And, you know, in my gut, I knew it was right. And, you know, when people are deciding between different firms, what I always ask them to kind of dive into is, if they were, if 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 you kind of think about each of these institutions that you potentially want to work for, I think the people and and I you know I, I hesitate because I know every company says well it's the people that make us different. Well, if everybody's people make them different, then how can you differentiate? Mm-hmm. But <laughs> the way you can the way you can differentiate is by asking yourself. Look at the recent graduates. You know, now it, it, for me, I'm very fortunate because Penn. There were a lot of recent graduates at both, so I had a lot of different examples. But if you don't have Penn, you should leverage something like SEO, or you should leverage something like MLT, Mm -hmm. or you should leverage something like another nonprofit organization, America Needs You. There's a lot of organizations. So back to your question in terms of how people do it from – you know, these non-target schools, it's tapping into these organizations that are national and they don't care what school you go to. So SEO doesn't care what school you go to. MLT doesn't care what school you go to. So if you're from one of these non-Ivy League schools and you want to break into this industry, I would definitely encourage you to break into those networks at, those networks, and, and other networks to try and help you do that. But basically what I did is I looked at recent graduates that were at Goldman, and I looked at recent graduates that were at Morgan Stanley, and I asked myself, if I were going on vacation, who would I want to go on vacation with? If I were going out to dinner, who would I want to go out to dinner with? If I were going to grab a drink, who would I want to go and grab a drink with? Every single time I asked myself that question, the majority of cases, it was that person at Morgan Stanley, just because the way they viewed the world was the way I viewed the world. And so when I thought about going to one of these places, getting your foot in the door that's difficult. Yeah, sure, but what really matters is is actually succeeding once you're in the door. And if you go to the company where you're a better cultural fit, you're going to succeed. And when you succeed, that's when you get promoted, that's when you get paid. And so I wasn't just looking at this in terms of how can I get a seat on Wall Street? I wanted the right seat on Wall Street. And for me, culturally, that was at Morgan Stanley. And so I kind of had that figured out in my head by the time I was in college. Um Retrospectively, I I I made a bet, and I and I was right with that bet, and I had no doubt about that. Um, and so that's kind of that is what I was that is what I was looking for, and that's what I found.
0: What would you say is the was the biggest challenge you faced early in your your career as a, as an investment banker?
1: Mm-hmm. The biggest challenge that I faced early in my career as an investment banker, I really did not coming from Wharton. There was an expectation that you would have taken certain courses and like you know, and, and able to do certain things. And I'll be very candid when I say while I was at Penn, I was working multiple different jobs, really financing my own way through Penn. And I really didn't take on, even though my bio says finance, like, yes, that is what my concentration was, but I really wasn't as gung-ho finance as a lot of the other finance people at Wharton, mm-hmm. candidly. And so I think my challenge was there was an expectation of people, because I went to Wharton and graduated having studied finance, there was an expectation from people that was beyond what the actual reality of the experience was, because I was working three different jobs, I was just trying to kind of get by, I was, you know, and and I think there was just a difference. And so early on in my time, I think there was a little bit of, of gap between subject matter content that I would have wanted to know coming into banking and subject matter content that I actually did know because I split my time at Penn doing so many different things, leading organizations and 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 working jobs and, and doing all these things that I didn't necessarily dedicate as much time as I wish I would have to some of the fundamentals. And so for somebody that is interested in Wall Street, what I would encourage you to do is actually really, really, really invest in those fundamental skills to make sure that You don't have some of those same challenges that I had early on because you can knock it out of the park in terms of the fundamentals. Um, So that would be the advice that I would give to somebody else uh, that that I didn't even necessarily do myself.
0: And I know, uh, and I, I alluded to this earlier in the show, but there is a lot of myths in, in, in investor banking. And I know sometimes I look, you look on TV and you look on movies. Investor banking gets a uh a, a, a bad rap sometimes uh, because mm-hmm. they get bad rap as far as they're greedy bad mm-hmm. they're erratic they're 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 um they only care about money they work a thousand hours a week they're always angry they're always drunk and not really happy with their lives and it just it, that's the only picture you see i mean you we, we watch a movie on wall street and then you see them anytime you see a mess of bacon it's always this like what what is your vantage point now that, that when you were on the floor when you're in the industry
1: to begin it is most certainly as a stereotype and i would say anybody who kind of Questions that, like, I can put you, I can point you to multiple people that I genuinely believe are some of the most generous people that I have ever met in my life at Morgan Stanley, bankers, people like Carla Harris, who I've mentioned as an example. Uh, there's another guy, you know, brother from South Side Chicago, Mandel Crawley, who's Morgan Stanley's global, global chief marketing officer. I look at these people and many, 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 many other people. Honestly, too many to name. I look at all of these people and how incredibly generous they are with their time, with their money, many with their talent whenever they can, and I know that it's a myth. And that is what it is, and I understand that you will not understand the way in which it is a myth until you are actually sitting in that seat and you feel that generosity pointed at you but i can tell you i have felt those generosity cannons all throughout morgan stanley just pointed it on me and so i do think that it is a myth that that investment bankers are greedy uh and so i and i'm happy to go into like any one of the myths that you want me to dive into more I want to I'm dive into because you, you might want you might
0: yeah, I, you well, might want to go back into the issue but I know I I fair, won't battle fair. you in this but I, I've I've gotten a lot of from my MLT folk and my people that's in it as well back like I guess it's more so who you are in your pers- your perspective as well who you come in contact with because you know there's probably are other examples out there to the contrary right
1: there are other examples out there to the contrary, and I agree with you. It is who you come into contact with. But if you were to go into investment banking and you're sitting in that seat, you get to pick who you want to to a certain extent. You may work with somebody who's a contrary of that example, but in terms of finding your mentors and in terms of how you lead your life, mm-hmm. you can be an investment banker and a very generous one. And for me, like I when I was in in, in school, the battle that I had in my head was do I go into do i go into investment banking or do i try to pursue something like tfa that was what was really at the top of my mind top of my heart i felt like that was the altruistic thing for me to do without a doubt now everybody is is different because it depends on your personal out you know your personal background what you're good at what you're going to be able to contribute all of these different things but for me again that's why i think uh, understanding of self mm-hmm. is very very important in terms of figuring out what you what you want to what career you want to go into where you're going to be successful because you got to understand yourself to know whether or not you can make a bigger impact you can change more lives by going and being a teacher or you can change more lives by going and being an investment banker but without a doubt me personally and I understand myself very well me going into investment banking was a more altruistic route. Mm-hmm. than me becoming a teacher. I would have rather been a teacher. I love it. I, I would have enjoyed it. I would have enjoyed doing that on a daily basis more than I enjoyed going into investment banking. And yeah, people say investment bankers work hard, but I would argue teachers work just as hard as the investment bankers are working hard. Um, and 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 it's just a different type of hard work. Mm-hmm. Um And so, but for me, Going into investment banking meant that I was going to be able to support my family in a way that I couldn't have support them if I went in and did teach it. Me, investment banking meant that I was going to be able to open doors for other minorities who wanted to go into finance in a way that I couldn't really open as many doors through that seat a- as a teacher. But I could partner as a banker with the teacher and help them open the door. And so I was me personally was able to have a bigger impact, be more altruistic, give back more. Be more generous as an investment banker than I ever could have by going into something like like teaching, me personally. Now, that's kind of why I I think it is such a myth that investment bankers are greedy. And now, are some investment bankers greedy? Absolutely. But look, there are a lot of educators that are greedy.
0: (laughs) Um, So,
1: you know, you're going to be able to find people on both sides. But what I would say to it is you choose the circle of people that you want to have as your mentor. You define what you want your experience to be. You don't let your industry define you. So to to categorize an entire industry as greedy, I don't agree that I don't subscribe to that mentality because I think it's a very limiting mentality that will only hurt you and distance you from what are potentially some very great people. And so to anybody who kind of subscribes to the belief that investment bankers are greedy, I would really challenge them to rethink that. I would challenge them to go to Google and to Google people like Carla Harris or like Mandel, who, again, are some of the most generous people that I personally have seen. I would challenge them to, to Google them, watch videos online, learn a little bit about their background, and then really, you know, at least be open to the idea of reconsidering the notion that Wall Street is a place where greedy people go.
0: Amen. Nah, amen. 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 I like that. I like that passion. Ah! So, all right, we're talking now. Let's transition before we get to our future round. And we ended up with the culture change rapid fire round. Let's talk about your decision um to to pursue business school, because if you look at your track, I mean, what you're doing right now and, and your resume, which is. I'm crazy. First time I, I got it, I thought it was something off Google. I was like, this don't make no sense. All the stuff that was on it. It just didn't make any sense. Because <laughs> like I looked right, I was like my man!" made a height and I looked at Joe. I said, shoot, I just almost threw my in the trash. <laughs> but uh, uh what I and, and I would be silly to ask what was the number one reason to apply for Harvard Business School. Cause obviously everybody if you listen to this podcast, you know the history of Harvard Business School and what it what it really means. But outside of what was your personal reason? Cause you are a man of self. What was your personal reason? Cause you probably had a, the, you, you probably can choose between any school in, in the country you wanted to kind of, um, go get an MBA. But one, why an MBA? And then two, and this is, I know this is like an alley to you cause you probably answered that question a billion times, preparing for essays and all this other stuff. But why an MBA? And then why specifically did you feel that, that Harvard is going to be your, 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 your school of choice?
1: Yeah. So in terms of why MBA, the way that I look at every single year in my life, I try to maximize two things. I try to maximize happiness, which is important. I think a lot of people forget that. But then the other thing I like to maximize is productivity. So what can I do with this year that's going to help get me to another level? And that's the way anytime I'm deciding, do I want to actually take on a new position? Do I want to sign up for this volunteer activity? Do I want to do X? Do I want to do Y? How do I want to allocate my time? I'm thinking about happiness and productivity. And business school is an A-plus in both of those fronts. On the happiness front, I could go into it in depth, but I think most people would probably intuitively understand how traveling the world, having interesting conversations with intelligent people, uh, speaking with professors, choosing how you spend your day – I think most people would probably understand how that's a a happier life than, you know, a nine to five, or the reality is a nine to five doesn't exist anymore. And especially if you're on Wall Street, you're looking at a, at a eight to midnight. So I think that most people can understand how the uh, happiness factor uh, was there from a school perspective. And so on the happiness front, MBA got an A plus. Now on the productivity front, That's where sometimes people are like, well, is it really, Uh, you know, a lot of times I'll hear, well, an MBA is very expensive. Now, I understand that. I agree with the fact that an MBA is expensive, though, for anybody who's not going to get an MBA for financial reasons, I would encourage them to look into things like the consortium, which can get you an MBA from a top business school for free. So it doesn't have like the, the money behind it does not have to be a barrier. Now, not every school is a part of the consortium. So Harvard is not a part of the consortium, meaning I don't have the opportunity to go to Harvard for free, and I'm going to have to spend a lot of money in order to go to Harvard. Um, but in terms of the productivity aspect of an MBA, the way I think about it is it's not about what you're going to do in the next few years after graduating from that MBA program. For some people, it is. If you're in the nonprofit space and you want to be a banker, you, like MBA, that's, that's a very effective route to make that change. If you're a banker and you want to be a consultant, MBA is an effective route to make that change. If you're a consultant and you want to go into nonprofit management, MBA, so if you're changing lanes, you're changing careers, an MBA is a very effective way to do that. If you are not changing it, I still think that MBA, it sets you up for long-term success in the business world. And it does so by basically giving you a network of people, a common experience. Right now, I'm going through an exercise. And as a part of this exercise, I have to look up the bios of, of corporate board members. As I'm looking up the bios of corporate board members, I can't even begin to tell you how, like, how frequently you see an MBA. Obviously, more often than not, mm-hmm. Um, but beyond more often than not, you know, you just it's 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 regular, so it's a, it's just part of the experience. It's it's part of being a part of that group of elite business leaders, Um, and it's the found it's it's one of the found, like fundamental things. You don't need it necessarily, but it'll certainly help you get there. So to answer the why MBA, I do that through the happiness and through the productivity. In terms of the why Harvard. For me, I think that as I'm thinking about different schools, as I think about my background, as I think about my upbringing, I'm the type of person, since 11 years on, kind of going back to that boarding school situation where I took advantage of, you know, I I took the advantage of every opportunity that was given my way, and anytime a teacher said, hey, I'll give you some extra help, I said yes. Um, My mentality is, if you give me the resources, I will put those resources to use, now there is no school in my opinion in the world that has the same amount of resources as Harvard. I and and you could quantitatively look at that by looking at its endowment size, but even beyond that, the brand recognition of the university just goes, you know, anywhere in this world. And that, to me, is very powerful. I know that what I'm going to want to do one day, the kind of impact that I'm going to want to have, the type of global change, definitely in the U.S., hopefully global, the type of impact that I'm going to want to have is going to require a lot of partners. It's going to require a lot of people. It's going to require a lot of resources. Harvard is a hub for all of that. Yes, other schools are as well. But I don't think any school in my research that I did, and I did research a lot of different schools, but ultimately when I decided to apply to school, Harvard was the only school that I applied to. So I didn't apply anywhere else. Yes, I recognized that that was a risk when I was it, but I went for it. Um, and the reason is just because the resources, and, and, and I don't think you can meet those resources anywhere. Now, there were other things that I love about the school, you know, the Harvard Innovation Lab. Uh, being able to kind of take advantage of those resources, which are geared towards people that have entrepreneurial interests. I certainly have a lot of entrepreneurial resources and interest, and will be taking advantage of those resources. There are things like the case study method, which for me is just like a perfect way of learning. Um, and and so there are other aspects of the school that I liked. But if I had to summarize in one word why Harvard, my word would be my that one word response would be resources
0: got you got you got you and what and i i know um what do you feel was the thing that made you stand out the most because you know Everybody that's listening to this show knows that thousands of people not only apply to Harvard, but apply to some of the top business schools in the world and they all have man. Everybody has a lot of experience. Everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people have amazing accolades. And I always I'm curious. And I, I talk to my colleagues all the time. They're in the process of, of going to business school right now. But what do you feel is the sole thing from your from from your experience and, and, and what jumps out and what made you such a, 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 a candidate?
1: So picking one thing would be, I really do think that these are very holistic. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, I think that they're very holistic processes. So Mm -hmm. I think it's very difficult to pick one thing. I think the, you know, Harvard's mission, the the organization as an institution, they're focused on educating leaders who are going to, you know, really go out there and make like a difference in the world. Like that's what the, that's what the organization is at its core looking to do. So not just looking to educate you for the sake of being educated, they're looking to educate you for the sake of making an impact on the world. And I think that that, you know, fundamentally what the organization is really focused on doing, my philosophy on life kind of aligned with that. So I would say that that was one thing that I had going for me. Another thing that I had going for me is part if you break down the different parts of the application part of it is you know work experience you know having done a very different set of things at Morgan Stanley like my resume looks very different from the typical finance person's resume mm-hmm. who goes to a top business school Typically, what you will see is you will see banking to business school, investment banking to business school, or you will see investment banking to private equity to business school or investment banking to a hedge fund to business school. You won't see a lot of investment banking to sales and trading to company management to business school. It's just a more, it's a different set of experiencing. It's a different set of experiences that I've had that I think have kind of made me stand out from the finance crowd. Now, the other thing that I had is is two very strong letters of recommendation, which I do think are incredibly important. One letter of recommendation, so Carla Harris is an, an alum of HBS. She graduated in 1987, and she's very active and prominent with the school. And she wrote me a very strong letter of recommendation. So that certainly helped put me on the radar. Then I'm very involved with Penn's Alumni Interview Program, and I had one of the directors of the alumni interview program write me a letter of recommendation. Now these neither of these are people that are very senior but I don't interact with. Both of them are people that are very senior but I have regular interaction with them and if I were to pick up the phone and call them, like I would get on the phone with them. Mm-hmm. And so they really knew me as a person, they knew what drove me. And so every aspect of my application was was woven together Like, you know, very delicately and very intentionally and very strategically. So I think that that helped me stand out. And then I think that when you have those ingredients, you're going to get an interview. Once you get an interview and every school has a different policy around their interviews, but with Harvard and it's stated online, if you get an interview, 50% of the people that get an interview with Harvard are ultimately admitted. Mm -hmm. So now it's up to how you're going to do in that interview setting. Now, I don't, I'm don't. i not big on leaving things up to chance, and so I prepared. And so leading up to the interview, I made a goal of doing one mock interview a day with an HBS alum, either a mock interview or an informational interview, which I basically helped me prep in the same way that a mock interview does, at least one a day for the months leading up to the actual interview. And so I was able to walk into that interview with extreme confidence. How many did you not end doing? Ah, uh, whew. Man, probably 50 or 60.
0: Man, you are giving um, tens of thousands of dollars worth of advice right here. hope y'all paying attention. That's insanity.
1: 50 or yeah. 60.
0: Okay, let you, let you keep doing this work because you're just, yeah, go ahead. Keep going.
1: Um, so, and, and 50 or 60 is just what I did. To clarify, that's just what I did in a few months before the interview. Mm-hmm. Like, if you, if you count all the informational that I've had with HBS alum, targeted conversation is definitely hundreds um, easily. Um, and so, yeah, I had done my homework before that interview. Um, and so not only did I know that I wanted to go to Harvard, but literally I know, and I still know, like, I know what role, what student activities I want to do, uh, in my first semester at Harvard, in my second semester at Harvard, in my third and my fourth semester at Harvard. And like what, you know, I knew the actual detail, like, what are those well, okay, you want to be you know, an education representative in your in my section. Well, what does the education representative actually do? And I've done the research on that. And so, like, I was prepared to go into depth on anything. Now, the interview was only thirty minutes, so we weren't able to cover everything, but I was ready to go into it. and And everything that did come up, I was prepared for. And so I think that, It was the, you know, it was the work experience. It was the commitment to my community, which aligned with the vision of Harvard. It was the letters of recommendation that got me in the door. And then it was my own ability to perform in an interview setting that ultimately got me the seat.
0: Mm, Man, this is... This is some gems, man. I I I love it, and I love how in depth that you painted that picture. Because of course, uh, there there everybody to 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 to, that gets into Harvard doesn't do that process, but you going into that depth paints a picture of just how much preparation helps, but what preparation really looks like. It doesn't look like okay for the first week week for the interview. I'm just gonna call a couple people and we just gonna get it done. Like this was so intentional. And if you go about anything in life, for the most part. That's that intentional. You're going to see results. <laughs> like mm-hmm. period. So, I mean, I, I let my audience take it from there, but I just thank you for just breaking that whole process down from, um, the thought process behind it, the, the steps to interview and now seeing what's next. So that's a perfect segue into the future round. So, um, before we get into the far fest future after hard, but what does 2017 look like for you? Because I know you start school and do you start school in July or how does that work?
1: Start school in August.
0: Start school in August. So mm-hmm. you're still working now. You start school in August. So how do you like? What's what's 2017 look for you?
1: Yeah. So I am still in the process of mapping out what 2017 exactly looks for, like for me. But mm-hmm. I know the, what some of my goals are for 2017. I really want to take this uh, public speaking thing that I've started doing at Morgan Stanley, and I've started basically doing these workshops, which we've talked about, mm-hmm. which have grown. Uh, for people in the New York area, I want to actually take that on the road and start doing it across the country. Uh, so between now and starting school, I plan on doing you know a week in Los Angeles where I'll go and do schools in the college, like in colleges out in the L.A. area, high schools out in the L.A. area. Um, my brother's out there, so that's probably why I'll start with L.A., But then I basically plan on going from, you know, L.A. to San Francisco to Chicago to D.C. to Atlanta to Baltimore to Miami. I basically want to go across the country and I want to really scale sort of what I've started to do. Um, And so I get to campus and I want to continue doing it on campus. I want to see basically between now and school is going to be the trial period to say, to myself, should I be doing this full time after graduating from Harvard? Or should I be, you know, going back into the corporate route and doing this on the side? Whether or not I'm doing it isn't a question. Like it's part of who I am. I love doing it. I'm going to be doing this like for my whole life. But do I do it full time? Do I do it part time? That's something that I'm going to be evaluating in 2017. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, you know, going back to the preparation for me, it's, it's not just about going to Harvard again, going to Harvard is that that's like step one. That's like the, the, the basic. But what the advanced is, is, how do I excel at Harvard? So I'm already having a lot of conversation with, you know, current first year MBAs, current second year MBAs, recent alum. I'm really getting into the nitty gritty and, and defining what my experience on Harvard is going to be like. I'm already making progress. You know, I was connected to a professor yesterday. I'm already making progress and started in terms of building those inroads with some HBS professors that I want to do work with. And so, basically, I'm trying to accomplish two things in 2017. I'm trying to set myself up so that I knock it out of the park when I get to Harvard. And I'm also trying to knock it out of the park in terms of really maximizing the number of students and recent alum that I'm able to reach through my talks.
0: Got you, Wayne. I guess to give a a sneak peek to your, what is, what is, what do you think is going to be your thought? Like what, what is going to go into? Cause I know you're still developing into the thought process, like after Harvard as far as continuing to maybe do it on your own or not because I think a lot of people listen to this show and I know I got a lot of my MLT colleagues that tune in frequently and they're, they're, a lot of them think as well like okay I go to the school and even if I'm I'm doing consortium even if I'm not paying that much still at the end of the day when I graduate I can continue my, my ideals and dreams of doing my thing full-time or I go ahead, work for a couple of years, stack up like it, that's a big question out there for a lot of people, because a lot of people that go to these type of schools have great ideas that they've already put into practice. And it's like, well, I could leave like because it, it's just hard to say, OK, I'm not going to take the $20,000 offer. I'm just going to be giving talks. It's like, well, it, it just kind of defies. So what what would you say is the core things that you're going to probably be, be, be thinking about in regards to that decision if, or, or if you're if you if you thought about that?
1: Yeah, I have definitely thought about it and the core thought is going to be whether or not I need more professional corporate experience mm-hmm. to be impactful with my talks. Yeah. So if I'm finding that you know it, like yes I I've, I've had a good amount of experience but say you know ultimately one day I want to do executive coaching and I want to coach Fortune 500 CEOs, now to cor- coach Fortune 500 CEOs, I think I need more work <laughs> experience than <laughs> the 5 years of of work experience that I've had at Morgan Stanley. And so if if you look at my LinkedIn profile and you see that I went the corporate route as opposed to you know going out and doing my own thing, then realized that that was very intentional in the back of my head. And that's because I want to be able to coach Fortune 500 CEOs one day. And so as a result of that, I felt like I needed to get a little bit more. you know And so that would be the reason that I go corporate as opposed to the paycheck, because going back to what I said before, even if I go the nonprofit route, I have no doubt that I'll be wealthy. Um and I think that the other thing that people don't sometimes realize and then again this goes to this goes to resources and this is very specific to Harvard but they have they have loan forgiveness. So if I go out and I do my own thing, I start my own thing, I do something that's social impact oriented, they'll actually forget like I won't have to pay the full price tag of that Harvard education versus if I go and I do something that is for profit, I'm definitely going to have to pay that full price tag and so yes, you know typically you do graduate with student debt, but if I graduate and I go and I do something like social impact oriented a lot I can have some of that debt forgiven and so financially that'll make it a lot easier probably than people really realize um, and so I think that there's you know there's a number of different ways that this could turn out mm-hmm. um. Money most certainly will not be the number one motivating factor between what I do after business school. The number one motivating factor is going to be what it post-business school experience is going to give me the best foundation to be able to ha- have sustained impact throughout the rest of my professional career and life.
0: Mm, amen. 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 I like that. Um, and our last two before we jump into our culture chain rapid fire round um, is if you could speak If you had an opportunity, you walked into a room and the person that was in front of you was your the high school version um, of yourself. What knowing what you know now, what do you think? What would you say to him?
1: Yeah, I would. I would say to myself to to speak up and and go for it. Um, I now I have this mentality where I just go for it. Um, And I did not have that. I was very again. I was very shy and I was very introverted and I was worried to fail and all of this stuff and. You know, my, and I'm going to take this line from Carla, who who she'll say this in a lot of her speeches, she'll say, you know, life is not a dress rehearsal and you only have one shot. So go out there and make the performance that you want, you know, so I would tell myself your college experience, your life, it's a blank canvas. And like you, you are an artist. So paint the life that you want. Don't try to Google the the a picture of somebody else's life that you think you like just actually go out and paint the life you want viewing it as a blank canvas. So that's that's the advice that I would give to myself. Mm.
0: Love that, love that. And when it's all said and done, at the end of the day, when your career is over, when um, and, and not to get dreadful, but how do you want to be remembered?
1: Uh, by the number of lives that I touched. Uh, so I want to be remembered as somebody who really made an effort to help everybody that I had the opportunity to interact with in my life. And I think if I do that, you know, nobody's going to be perfect. I'm not going to be able to help every single person with every single thing, but I'm just trying to maximize the number of people that I can reach. Um, And I'm in a fortunate spot that I really enjoy doing this. So by doing that, I'm also kind of you know, going back to one of my goals is always happiness. I'm also happiest when I'm able to do that for a lot of people. And so those two kind of go hand in hand, but that's, that's how I want to be remembered. I want to be remembered as somebody who, you know, genuinely gave their best effort possible to making a difference in the lives of everybody that they come into interaction with.
0: Amen man so as we close it out thank you for that as we close it out our last round our culture change round we answer or we i ask a series of five rapid-fire questions you give me rapid-fire answers and then we ended up with our last question you ready man all right what's the best piece of advice that you never received
1: Hmm. uh life was a blank canvas so paint the picture that you want that's something that i kind of realized over the years I really do wish that I had somebody tell me that sooner.
0: Yeah, because everybody else tells you kind of like they they give you formats to kind of get to where you want instead of just kind of giving you that that language. But I guess wouldn't you say it takes a certain amount of maturity to kind of really understand and, and really take it and go with that quote, though?
1: I agree. It does. And I think it takes maturity. It takes foresight and it takes confidence. But I think if you deliver those things to it, the results pay.
0: Amen. What is your biggest fear?
1: Ooh, my biggest fear is so actually a lot of the stuff that I do ultimately it's it's fairly lonely mm-hmm. um and so my biggest fear is that I'm constantly you know thinking so much about giving, giving back giving back, giving back, giving back, giving back, giving back that I'm not actually taking care of myself, and so you know I think the the fear of kind of ending up alone that that is a is a very real feel is a very real fear
0: mm. That's real man. Uh, what would you say of your favorite book and why?
1: Favorite book without a doubt is a book called The Other Westmore by the author's oh, yep. name is Westmore uh, and it is about Westmore's life growing up in Baltimore and how you know his life really turned around. he went to military school. he just was able to kind of accomplish an incredible amount of things. He became a Rhodes Scholar while he was in London studying abroad. Uh, he, you know, got a call that there were wanted posters all around his city in Baltimore uh, for another person in his home neighborhood who just happened to have the same name, Westmore, who was you know, being put away in jail because uh, in conjunction with having uh, murdered a cop during a robbery. And, you know, this is his home neighborhood, Person with the same name. He comes back to Baltimore and decides to actually visit this other person named Westmore in prison and just sees how different their how different their life became uh, as a result of, of choices uh, that they that they had made and it's just this you know really powerful story around how two people from very similar circumstances ended up in very different places and uh, it's my favorite book for a number of reasons number one because you know I've been very fortunate I've been very blessed in terms of some of the experiences that I've had um, my oldest brother, not the middle brother who kind of followed the same footsteps of, as me in terms of these schools and everything like that, my oldest brother didn't have the same type of educational opportunities that he's had. And I've just, obviously I, I work, I've, I'm working with him, you know, the, the, the purchasing a home for him was a way of really motivating him and, and I think it's doing that. And, and really, if he had kind of had the same, like if he was younger than me, and he had the same opportunity to go to that school, and my mom could have negotiated a three for one deal as opposed to a two for one deal, then he would have been, you know, probably in a in a very incredible place. And I and I still have no doubt that he will one day get there. But he lives, you know, while I'm on Wall Street, you know, for many years, he was in poverty, and so in in many ways, the other Westmore resonates with me, um, because I kind of see that in my own family with myself and my oldest brother and then one more layer that that resonates with me through a family friend uh, so this was my favorite book before I actually met Westmore
0: mm-hmm. but
1: through through a family friend I was able to get in touch with Westmore and he's just one of the most giving generous you know giving generous incredible people that I've met and so actually knowing the author having had the opportunity to talk with the author Really considering the offers, the, the, somebody that is a mentor, um, that's another reason that I really love the book. Um, and to tie it back into Wall Street and greed, again, he's somebody who was an investment banker. So, And the least greedy person that I've ever, you know, one of the least greedy people ever. He's just so incredibly generous and and and, and warm. So I won't belabor that point. And I know this is supposed to be rapid fire and I just yeah. went on a very long tangent <laughs> no, you're good. about the other Westmore. But, I, you know, I do feel very strongly about the book
0: got you got you got you thank no thank you for giving that context that really fleshes it out too um and what would you say the top resource resource uh resources and website i guess two that you use on a daily basis
1: linkedin is number one Mm -hmm. uh and the you know number two i'll say is people so the number one and and i do that on a daily basis informational interviews so whenever there's something that i want to know and i don't know how to do it i get in touch with somebody through linkedin that does know how to do it and Greg, I don't know if you remember, but the way I got in touch with yeah. you was I came, across <laughs> your, I came across your LinkedIn profile. I saw that you were, you know, MLT family. I saw that you were SEO family, and I just shot you a message, and I watched one of your videos, and I was really inspired and impressed by the work that you were doing, by the impact that you were looking to have, and by some of these public, public speeches that you had done in different schools, and I watched some of the videos, And I just shot you a message. And I basically just said, Greg, like, I'm really inspired by the work that you're looking to do. I'm looking that you are doing. I'm looking to do some of the elements that you are looking to do. And I just got on the phone with you. And it wasn't really that difficult to do. And we were able and I was able to pick your brain. And then that actually, you know, this is around the time I was starting to build out all the public speaking stuff. and, And it's taken off from there. And so I used your advice to basically be able to to scale some of what I wanted to do. And so I got in touch with you through LinkedIn. Um, and that and that's how I go about uh learning about most things that I don't already know but I need to know more about is, is looking for experts on LinkedIn.
0: Hey man and I think um one he utilizes good because I mean I get a lot of messages on LinkedIn. I know you get a lot of messages on LinkedIn and you could tell somebody that's serious uh about something where I mean great introduction fleshed it out and then the email already had his resume attached and i knew it was serious but then i saw the resume i said this dude is really about something so because i get a lot of messages every day on a lot of different various platforms but the the in-depth that he does and i can i can probably see how it works out within a lot of other people in different fields because they know um how he approaches it, how he approaches the situation. I think a lot of people can take that from, and not just use a lot of LinkedIn, adding people's friends and that's it. And not just shooting people quick message. Hey, how you doing? Um, I see you invested. How do I get into it? But really painting the picture in the story, seeing where the common connections in lay, and then being intentional about that message that fosters real, real relationships that you could take on, on your life. And I think you're a great example of that. Yeah. Um, And our last question for the final round, is if you were the president of the United States, what is the first thing you would do?
1: First and foremost, I don't think that is a job that I would want. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You never know, man. I would rather be secretary of education. I'm much more, I know what my interests are and I know where my knowledge gaps are. And so I won't kid anybody and and say that I'm qualified from a well-roundedness perspective to to fill the shoes of a uh, President Obama, who I think did an incredible job, I won't say that I kind of have that same skill set. But yeah, you're, you're right. I never know. And I would never cross something off my list. And I certainly would never say it's impossible, because I don't think anything is impossible in this day and age. Um, but I think that if I were president, what I would try and accomplish, I mean, I would be very focused on education. And that's not to say that I think education is the single most important thing. Do I think it's important? Absolutely. But it is kind of where my, it is where my strengths and where my educations are and, and my interests are. And I think when you stay in the space of your strengths, you tend to perform better and deliver results more. But if I were president, I would really be, I would be going into schools. I would figure out how you kind of change the, the lives of, uh, and really motivate people that are kind of not motivated and how you inspire them, because I think if you have a nation of people who are all performing at their best, then everything, thats I think that's how you really turn systemically, that's how you turn a country around, that's how you turn issues around, is by, you know, making sure that everybody is contributing with their talents, because everybody has their own set of talents, you just have to figure out how to put those talents to work. And so if you can do that, you obviously... You obviously reduce unemployment, a number of other economic things will turn around favorably. So that's where I would be spending my time focused on um, if I were president. And again, uh, it's not because I'm saying education is more important than any other subjects. It's just because I'm saying that it's, it is important without a doubt. And I, And that's where I think I would be most impactful. But obviously, I would have advisors for all of the other stuff.
0: Man, great answer. Great answer. So we're done with the culture change round and we know I call myself the culture change agent, but everybody I bring on these show are culture change agents in their own sector, in their own lane. And so I always like to end the show off with a question specifically about and if you could change one thing about society, most specifically our African-American culture, what would it be and why?
1: Yeah, I think that the one thing that I would change would be who some people in society, again, particularly the black community, who they look up to as their inspiration and who they want to become. So I know that as a kid growing up in Jamaica, Queens, I felt like there were one of three paths to success. I was either going to reach success. And again, as a kid, success was wealth. I was either going to get there by being in the NBA, I was going to be a rapper, or I was going to sell drugs. Now there's obvious issues with the latter. Um, and, and, but the reality is like, those are in the community I was in. I felt like those were your three outlets to, to, to wealth creation. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and so I wanted to be mine was, I wanted to be a professional basketball player. That's, that's what I thought I wanted to be when I was a little kid. That's who I kind of idolized as a little kid, um, basketball players. And, that, and again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with training yourself and trying to be an excellent athlete. But I, what I would want to do is I would want to real like I would want society, people that are young in the black community, to realize that especially if you're targeting your your goal of wealth, that's not the way to go about it. As an example, you know when I'm doing these talks, I'll ask people, you know, who are your favorite rappers, and they might say, you know, Drake, they might say Nicki Minaj, they might say, you know, X, Y, and Z people. And then you go into what their net worth is. And it's like, okay, well, Drake's net worth is $100 $100 million. You know, the real people who have net worth in the rap industries are the ones who, they're more than just rappers. Jay-Z, Diddy, Dr. Dre, those are the wealthiest rappers. And then beyond that, you add up the wealth of all of those very wealthy rappers, and it's still, you know, a fraction of the wealth of somebody like a Robert Smith, who's the second wealthiest black person in America behind Oprah he started a private equity company called Vista Equity Partners, and so you know, he's worth I don't even know it's about two billion dollars or something like that, probably more. Um, people don't know of those people as examples, and so the thing that I would kind of want somebody in you know that's young and in the black community to really realize is is think critically about who it is that you view as your idol. You know, do you really view Little Wayne as your idol? Or can you transfer that over and view Oprah as your idol? Um, and so that is kind of what I would want people to 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 understand. And it's not at all because there's anything wrong with the you know the path that Lil Wayne or Drake or you know Nicki Minaj any of them took, but it's just because of what is what is you know realistically going to happen um from the perspective of you putting yourself and your family in the best possible situation and what you actually and it translates who you idolize translates who you what you spend your time doing mm. and i and, and and so that i just want people in our community to spend their time doing something that is going to be productive and impactful for themselves for their families and for their community
0: yeah nah you 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 hit that Immediately on their head, it, it, it translates to who they look up to. It also translates to the decisions they make and all that. Because uh, I know last time we talked, um and a, a couple of things that changed, but I actually now work as until until August, I'm working as a um, as a teacher, Title One school, as a business teacher. And the stuff that I see on an everyday basis, um the stuff that I hear, I'm encouraged by a lot of my students. But I am, I do tend to come home frustrated by a large percentage of not only my students, but some of the students within the school that they just in some some bad situations and the actions that they take and the things that they listen to, the stuff that they intake. I'm not sure it's going to take them to that next level to get out of this situation. And it's just cycles of poverty in North Carolina that continues. And I know you see the same thing. It's probably at some schools in New York and across the country in the areas like Chicago and Detroit. So hope as we continue to get get further along in our careers, go ahead, get educated, make big money and continue to impact through our talks that we just never forget. Not to just go back and speak because at the end of the day, these are students that you go speak one time for an hour and they they hear Morgan Stanley, they hear Goldman Sachs, but when you leave and, you know, the title story, but it's so true. When you leave that talk and go home to your mother that's on drugs and then your father that may not be in the household and then you may have siblings that don't have enough to eat, that talk goes out the window. Then it's Mm -hmm. like, what? Oh, no. The only thing I'm going to listen to is this rap music and I'm going to get high because I don't want to be in a situation. So, but that's a conversation for another day but as long as we continue to build and help those that we can help because i think you definitely talked about it earlier at the end of the day you want to help as many people as you can but you do realize that you cannot help everybody but luckily through mentorship and other things those people that you do come in contact hopefully those can be the other ones that kind of pins to helping everybody else in society
1: mm-hmm. absolutely
0: so I would like to thank you for your time, man. It's been like, I, I should have called it at the beginning of the episode. forgot to, but this has been a classic. Like I, I tell you, this has been one of my most, if not the most enjoyable interview that I've done on season three, man. Uh, a lot of actual items, real stories. You went in depth on each one. You didn't left nothing out there, like just some tree willowing in the wind. And for our audience, how can they reach you or find out more about what you're doing? Keep in contact.
1: Yeah, best way to reach me is send me an invitation to connect on LinkedIn, and then after you've connected with me on LinkedIn, you'll have uh, just put in the body of the message that you, you know, you listen to the Minority Trailblazers, uh, you know, you listen to the podcast, and and that'll kind of give me some context, and then I'll accept your invitation to connect on LinkedIn, and then you'll have my Gmail address will be public to you once you've once I've accepted your invitation to connect on LinkedIn, and I will respond. And so I would encourage people to reach out to me and I do anticipate a lot of people will reach out to me. And that's that's the goal. That's what I want, um, especially because I'll be going throughout. You know, if all goes according to plan, I'll be going throughout the U.S. in the coming in months, really trying to hit every major city. Uh, so especially if you're in one of those cities, I can let you know when I am in that city, when I'm doing a talk. And it would be great if you you know, you're able to make it. So I would absolutely highly encourage people on the call to send me an invitation to connect on LinkedIn as a first step and then send me an email as a follow up and we will get in touch.
0: Hey man! So everybody on the call, um, everybody that's listening online, please, I will have all the information in the show notes as far as a link to his LinkedIn profile and all those good things. And as he updates his information on his, his on his tour and his speaking, I will make sure it's on our website and y'all will be aware. So make sure you reach out and don't reach out. Hey, I listen to interview. How do I do this? Please have some context and uh and, and have something worthwhile so that he can he can he can know how to help because I think that's a lot of uh, and that's a whole other podcast for whole another day. People, once again, from Minority troublations heart, from my heart, man. Thank you for giving us well over an hour and a half of your time on a Monday, man. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's truly a pleasure. And that's a wrap. Minority and Nation, I'm telling y'all, I did not, we did not mean to do an hour in 40 minute plus podcast. That was not the intent. Conversation got rolling. He only had about an hour of time, but we just, we just went with it. And I'm glad that we did. Also, 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 y'all know before we close out. I need you to do two things. If you listen to over an hour and 40 minutes of this podcast, then you probably have already left a review. <laughs> but if you have not, please do me a favor. Go to iTunes and leave a review. You can go on my website and it shows you exactly how to leave a review. Please make sure you do that. I would appreciate that from the bottom of my heart. And also, I want to make sure wherever you're going, wherever you're driving, after you're done with this, if you're not in a position to close your eyes, wherever you're at, when you do get into a position to close your eyes... I want you to meditate on this, right? And I know what you're thinking. What does Greg want me to meditate on? And I got you. Meditate on these four words. Change the freaking culture. Good night.